0: hundred years ago, 50% of the population was in agriculture, now it's 2%. So I don't think it's going to go back to 50, but two is too low. It's, it's not enough people in the food system. Not everybody has to be a farmer. Professional services that exist among the broader corporate jobs can, I think, be retooled for supporting regional food systems.
1: I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Today we're talking about a fascinating business that's focused on funding small-scale regenerative farms to help them grow into viable businesses. We talk a lot about regenerative ag on this show, why it's important, and some of the success stories out there. But one of the major challenges in this space is actually getting the funding, the moolah, to grow and scale your business. One of the crazy stats we learned, or at least I learned, from Chef Tim West a few months ago was that only 1% of farm subsidies in America go towards fruits and vegetables. Essentially, if you're doing the monocrop industrial ag thing, there's a ton of government funding for you. But if you're trying to farm sustainably, build up soil health and biodiversity, heal degraded land, all the stuff we love, your funding options are pretty slim. Banks don't want to take on the risk. Government programs are tailored to the big dogs. So you're kind of left to fundraise on your own from friends and family, or maybe on platforms like Kickstarter. That's where Steward comes in. It's a platform where you and I can invest in a regenerative farm for as little as a hundred bucks. You can pick what projects you want to fund, whether it's mobile chicken coops for a farm in PA, more cattle for a holistic ranch in Texas, a compost production in Washington, or an oyster farm in Florida. These are just a few of the projects on their website. And I say invest, but it's really a loan where you get paid back your principal plus interest. But we'll go into all the nitty gritty money details with Dan. So Dan Miller is the founder of Steward. Prior to this business, he co-founded Fundrise, the first and biggest real estate crowdfunding platform in America. He took his learnings from that business and applied it to agriculture, which you can imagine is a whole nother ballgame. And I gotta say, I am really inspired by what Dan has built. I'm so excited for you to listen. If you're new here, welcome! Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.to.future. All right, enjoy the show.
0: Howdy, y'all. We're really glad you're listening to the podcast. We are big fans. My name's Neil Dudley, and I'm the vice president of Peterson's Farms. We make top-quality bacon, sausage, and ham from humanely raised animals that are never fed any animal byproducts. So what does that mean for you? It means delicious, healthy proteins made with care that you can feel really good about eating and feeding your family. To learn more, visit petersonsfarms.com. Now that's with a D, P-E-D-E-R-S-O-N-S-F-A-R-M-S.com. And since we're fans of the podcast, we want to give you a discount code. Use FARM to future and get 10% off. Thank you. See you there.
1: I'm so excited for this conversation. We have Dan Miller. I almost said Dan Stewart, but Dan Miller from Stewart here.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: For those that don't know you yet, you founded Fundrise, which is a real estate crowdfunding platform that is doing really, really well. I actually heard about Fundrise a couple months ago through a friend who's really into investing and she's telling me all about the O stock. And she was like, You got to check out Fundrise. And I was like, Okay. And then a few weeks later, I hear about Steward, uh, what you're building now. So, I mean, real estate's obviously one of the most lucrative types of investments you can make. You're in the business of land and, you know, generating a lot of income from land, going from that to farming, which is a lot less lucrative historically. Tell me, like, what was going on through your mind during that transition time and who or what kind of inspired you to to get into the farming space?
0: Yeah, I will say regenerative agriculture is definitely harder to make money than traditional <laughs> real estate, but it's worth it. It's needed. My my interest in, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of two things with Stuart. It's a platform to raise financing for regenerative producers. So it has the kind of an online platform that lets anybody participate, which is what I learned in building Fundrise. And, and that was originally developed out of the desire to have a different type of investor for creative real estate projects we were doing. So it's always been, how do you find an alternative source of funding that is more aligned and understanding of of the type of product that you're offering? But in agriculture in specific, I have two links to it. My mother's family has been farming in the Chesapeake Bay since the late 1800s. So Mm. she left the farm. I grew up in Washington, D.C., but always kept those ties. And and we had a home and spent a lot of time in that region. And in school, you'd learn about the Chesapeake Bay and the, the destruction of the ecosystem and Obviously agriculture and land management had a huge, huge part of that. So that was the personal connection of you know, a, a commodization of a, a region and the, the kind of destruction that happened. Um, is there an alternative way to do farming and are there um, people that are practicing agriculture in alignment with ecosystems? Um, and then I met a chef in the Baltimore area called Spike Jurdy. Um, he has a James Ward award-winning restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen obsessive about sourcing local and within the watershed is really how it's thought of kind of within the region of that ecosystem and through him i began to meet uh producers that he was selling their products promoting their work you know everyone's so excited about what these smaller scale uh regenerative producers are 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 growing and selling marketing and then you would chat with them about how their business was going and always the challenge was access to capital which Mm -hmm. was surprising at first because the consumer demand has totally shifted for products they're growing, but the reality is the financing hasn't. And then I was doing Fundrise at the time, so I had in my mind, you know, maybe an alternative could be individuals online. And as I began to learn about agricultural financing, if you're doing large-scale commodity production, there's unlimited amounts of financing and cheap government funding and subsidies and programs. But the second you're outside of that and you're doing, you know, diversified, regenerative, sustainable, you know, there are a million names for agriculture is focused on soil health and ecosystems and and quality first. Once you're in that market, you're you're cut out of those traditional channels. And so you don't have the capital you need for land equipment to grow. So it felt like I, I had an insight into this market and through Fundrise and growing up in real estate, understood how to create alternative platforms and products to serve this market. And the belief in the beginning was that people care immensely about this. Institutions may be behind, but individuals themselves are trying to put more dollars towards regional food systems. And normally that's by purchasing products, which is important and farmer's markets or direct. But this, the more important thing is how can you provide capital and resources to those producers? Because they, they need that capital to then grow their business, to produce more, to then sustain themselves and provide more product to people.
1: Yeah, one shocking stat I learned recently was that only 1% of farming subsidies go towards what they call specialty crops, aka fruits and vegetables. And yet that's like the base of a nutritious diet, right? Um, Correct. So it's interesting. Have you seen or are you involved with any of the policy conversations around shifting subsidies? And did you kind of like consider getting involved in that world?
0: Yeah, I track it closely. I have opinions on it, of course. The reality is, it's, it's a very distorted market. Agriculture is pretty much the market is created by government policy. So you can't avoid policy in that it defines the scope of the market and where the lower cost and subsidy is. My view with regenerative agriculture is it, it's unfair, but it has to prove itself independently to then be able to claim the majority of the subsidy resource, I think, to make the strongest argument. And the benefit of this type of agriculture, it is resilient. It doesn't require as many external elements, as long as you have all the capital and resources you need to do that business, which is the hard part, that that's Mm -hmm. not available. So we are having policy conversations, a lot of our, the farmers we fund are active actually at the local policy level, even sitting on uh, one in Michigan, sitting on the Michigan Ag board. So there's definitely a grassroots movement, but at the federal level, those are some of the most powerful (laughs) companies on the planet. And one day we will be at that position to have that influence, but Those are some serious operations. And the reality is it's not the farmers that are generally getting the net benefit at the end of the day. It's the intermediaries, the conglomerates that are generally earning the extra money. So um, if you can show a new opportunity for farmers that they can access new markets with new products, they will tend to change their practices and ways of doing. But the the thing about regenerative ag is it's not just the producing of it. You still have the processing, marketing and sale of it. They can't just sell into some commodity supply chain. So it requires a lot more to really provide the outlets to change people. So I, I'm, I'm interested in policy. I think we will become more active. There's a, a big movement now for more regenerative, you know, resources in the Farm Bill. There will be more probably, but the vast majority will still be traditional conventional ag. There's been more grant programs uh, under Biden administration, particularly for this type of work. So the, the policy is trying, but we shouldn't be waiting for government to solve agriculture for us. That's, I think, unfortunately been a huge part of the problem, and if we can just build an independent system that's not reliant on government policy, that can thrive in its own regard, and then over time you can bring the incentives towards it. But at the end of the day, if you could cut all the incentives across the board or programs, net net, it would benefit the sustainable diversified farmer because they're using it less, but they also have a resilient business that has direct customer relationships and isn't reliant on long supply chain. So that's not something that's going to happen. Obviously, politically, it's it's an odd starter. But in reality, it's an unfair playing field that these, you know, small to mid-sized diversified producers have to compete um, against the the, the enormous uh, organizations in commodity ag. But at the end of the day, they don't compete with them because their product quality is so much superior and the traceability Mm -hmm. is so much better that consumer demand wants that product. It just needs more availability of it.
1: Do you have a philosophy around, like, this percent of our diet is always going to come from commodity egg you know we're always going to get like wheat corn like certain uh carbs let's say like from big egg and then the high density nutrition like fruits and veg and meats are going to come from regenerative egg like do do you kind of have a philosophy no
0: i don't subscribe to that i I have no compromise (laughs) It, it, it all used to be done differently so it all could be done differently when will that happen? How will that happen? What will be the encouragement for that to happen? Ultimately, I think it's about resources. You can not You can only deplete resources at, to some point where they have to sustain themselves. But uh, there's no reason that this couldn't be the dominant and form of agriculture. It was for the history of humanity prior to the Industrial Revolution in reality. So um, I think it can be. The changes in diets of people eating better and knowing how to eat better, that's that's a challenge. So that that is far beyond just providing the resources to these producers. That's a cultural change that's required. Certainly there's more awareness of it than ever in terms of sourcing. And I think the internet's helped broaden people's access to different types of food, but at least in America, the lack of time that people have and the kind of work over food and culture, even like sharing lunch. A lot of cultures, people come home for lunch, kids come home for lunch. It's not common in the US. So a lot, a lot of those elements that I think tie people to agriculture and food systems need to be rebuilt, you know, recreated. And there are a lot of people doing that kind of work.
1: Yeah. You mentioned pre-industrial times. I mean, in those era, it was like 80 to 90% of us were toiling in the fields, right? And producing food. Whereas today it's uh, flipped, right? Where it's like only 3% of the country is actually producing food and farming. I mean, do you see us going back in in mass becoming farmers?
0: No, I don't don't think it's a return 200 200 years ago. Um, But you know, it's it's been very recent. It's really pre-World War II. You know, 100 years ago, 50% of the population was in agriculture. Now it's 2%. So I don't think it's going to go back to 50, but two is too low. It's it's not enough people in the food system. But that's not just farmers. I think certainly a lot of people are becoming farmers. We're funding lots of farmers who are non-farm background, which is very rare historically that people who aren't from farm backgrounds are, are going into farming. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them with college degrees, which is just the kind of the cultural shift of priorities. That That's a big shift that's happening. But ultimately, most urban professionals, where they can help most is by lending their like knowledge and skill to farms, like helping them with digital marketing or helping them with bookkeeping or accounting. So the mm-hmm. same, I think, professional services that exist among the broader kind of corporate jobs can, I think, be retooled for supporting regional food systems. So not everybody has to be a farmer, but I think people can add value and assist these enterprises and be part of the links of regional food system in, in that way
1: that makes me feel validated because I, when I tell people, you know, I'm interested in food and farming, they're like, Oh, are you a farmer? <laughs> I'm like, no, no. Like I, I talk to farmers. <laughs> I try to give them visibility, but part of me always feels a little bit guilty that like, Oh, like I don't have my hands in the soil doing this, but that makes yeah. a lot of sense. No,
0: I know. I'm sure that's a guilt among many. I, I have that guilt somewhat times too. So I think, you know, you want to be involved and connected to the farms, but not everyone's going to become a farmer. But there's still a lot of ways to support. You know, buying product from farmers, lending money to farmers through Steward and other platforms, and then the third, and we're kind of starting to build some of these relationships, is providing like business services to farmers, which is a huge problem that they don't have accounting support or legal support or. They don't know how to run a digital marketing campaign for a direct consumer product, or they don't know how to do the labeling and packaging. So many of the challenges in, in regional food systems and regenerative veg actually has nothing to do with production. It's hmm. often post-production.
1: Interesting. I never heard it described that way with post-production outside of media.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, processing, distribution, and end sale, basically, which can be vertically integrated. They can be different companies. You want as few intermediaries as possible. So ideally that's Kind of a networked organization of producers processing and sales but there's a lot of skill set required across all those elements
1: is that kind of the direction Stewart is moving and your business model is providing add-on services versus taking like admin fees off of loans
0: our, our, yeah, our core product is credit so you know private loans basically funded to a farmer secured with the collateral and distributed through our platform to funders that buy pro rata pieces of that. So they can either fund the portion, you know, of a loan to an individual farm project or in a diversified pool of projects. So that's like, that's the the main thing that we do. But the reality is once you start financing farms, you're now involved in their business and you want them to be successful. And helping them be successful often means stepping in and assisting the things that were not what you had planned. One of the farms, the first farms we funded was Fish Eye Farms in Detroit. They bought two acres of land from the Detroit Land Bank, kind of transformed the, the neighborhood by taking this degraded land and making it to local farm. They primarily sold restaurants. COVID hit. We helped them build an online direct consumer website. They launched it, sold 20% of last year's revenue in a single day, and then had all direct sales with local pickup. And a farm stand from that 100 percent shift in their their sales channels in basically three weeks, so that required us to assist with a lot of the tech for that because they're you know they're farming and those types of things of us stepping in has has brought us to the point where we're formalizing some of those skill sets and so if we need technical assistance support on like a meat processing plant which is very hard to run and operate we can connect them with somebody that has expertise in that we have a grant writer now who writes grants on behalf of farmers like you said about policy getting access to the the dollars that are coming their way and marketing, accounting and all, all of basically the normal services that a business needs that aren't about agricultural production. Almost all the time, the farmer has no, no interest in doing those. Mm-hmm. That's the reality. They went into farming not to do that. So you can take a lot of the administrative and like you said, post-production the kind of the, the elements of helping to get the product to market, market it, sell it and administer that whole process. That, mm-hmm. that's a huge need. The, kind of service providers aren't there. They're very informally there, but there's nowhere that a farmer could go and say, I have got product. I want to direct market into this market and I need 300 customers, you know, and I'll do weekly deliveries and help me set up that and execute that campaign.
1: Mm. Okay. So I was reading that in your first year, over 2000 farms applied for funding and you selected 16 in that first cohort. How big is the portfolio now? And, and what are the different types of criteria you use to select which farms to loan to?
0: So we, we're we making about one loan a week now. So it's definitely sped up. We had two last week, just as an example. One was a $530,000 loan to a cattle ranch in Atlanta, where we were financing the purchase of additional cattle, effectively, to maximize the land. Another was a compost, a farm that has a compost business in Pacific Northwest. That was about an $80,000 loan for mainly equipment. It's, it's all different types of farms all across the country, all values focused, all obsessed with farming practices, many very far in the learning curve and very knowledgeable about regenerative ag. Others younger and learning, others had done traditional farming and now switching, you know, all, all different types, but, you know, farming practices are, are number one. Um, and then after that, we do the traditional underwriting, you know, financial underwriting, background checks, cash flow forecasts, p tax returns. A lot of the time we're assisting the borrower in like preparing and collecting these things because they're just not comfortable and familiar with a lot of it. So a lot of our process is having an applicant come in, talking with them first, there's a farmer on our team who does the agricultural diligence, talking with them first about you know them as farmers and their experience and background and their bottlenecks and what they produce and where they sell it and everything about their business, but just in a farm conversation. So it doesn't feel like they're speaking with a traditional lender. And then from that, we make an assessment, which goes to the credit financial underwriting and then the loan is made posted on the platform and then distributed to our network so we we have control of the whole process from you know helping them through the application process to the funding and i think that's what makes our model possible that it's between mm-hmm. us the farmer and our users who are funding the loans and as long as we are all comfortable with the arrangement and the deal and their story you know, we can move forward with it, we're not reliant on anything else. And, and that's the speed and kind of pace and flexibility that does not exist in the market. But every one of these producers is a bit different. The funding they need is a bit different, the structure is different, they need interest to accrue for this period or not. So, you know, we, we have full flexibility and customization on what terms we can offer and how we can structure it to each farm.
1: So I I heard you speak on another podcast about the three different types of loans you offer. Is it still those three structures or can you talk about what types of loan structures you offer?
0: Yeah, the, the first kind of primary loan we have is called a participated loan. It's a loan made to an individual farm. So I mentioned that farm in Atlanta, we financed the livestock. We then put it on our platform, sell to our user base. This one sold out in 24 hours. And mm-hmm. people can fund, you know, as little as 100, people are funding hundreds of thousands, and they're basically buying a pro rata piece of, you know, loan participation, a pro rata piece of that loan. So Steward Lending LLC underwrites a deal, issues a loan, is a lender of record, and then sells that participation through our platform. So there they receive the interest and principle of the loan to that specific borrower and business tied to the risk of that business, but also tied to the narrative of directly funding that business and seeing the use of funds. Mm-hmm. Steward doesn't take any spread, so the interest mm-hmm. and principal is paid back directly. If the loan is made at 6.5%, the lenders will receive 65 with repayments, and then we charge the borrower 3% loan origination fee paid at settlement. So borrower pays the fee at closing, funds are raised and distributed to the borrower, and then the repayments begin according to a custom schedule. That's our kind of main product. We've launched last year, which is soon to be our main product, probably, a diversified credit vehicle. So this allows lenders to lend money to us for a short-term basis for a nine-month term at 4.5% annual interest, so relatively high yield for short-term duration. And then we take those loans and issue a series of bridge loans, short-term loans to farmers. A lot of times, particularly like buying land, the farmer needs the money quickly and they have to have it at a certain date. They can't wait for a funding campaign online to hit. So we can provide a bridge loan to quickly close on the land and then prepare with permitting and plans for the kind of renovation of the full facility with a refinance through an individual loan. So they really work in tandem. One's a kind of immediate guaranteed funding that's needed that can move very quickly, and the other one's kind of a funding campaign specific to an individual project. So those are the two main products. And then on top of that, we like I said, they kind of informal services. We're just finding other ways to help these types of regenerative farmers, and those will become business lines in the future. But the kind of main credit products are what we have today.
1: Got it. Okay, interesting. So these gap funding, kind of real estate, short-term funds tee up some of these farms for bigger operations and going into the traditional participatory loan product.
0: Correct. Like we have a, a loan that should be closing next week to a farm and agritourism project in San Juan Islands in in Washington State. So they're going to use a bridge loan to close on the land. And then nine to 12 months later, it'll be refinanced through another loan on our platform. And that'll give them the time to get permits for any renovations, kind of plan layout changes, start to hire staff. So in in reality, it works well that like when you have your full narrative out to the public, you want to have refined it, but you can only refine it by having access to the land and really Mm -hmm. starting to plan it. And, and that was just a need that we had seen. Like farmers, I would hear from them, you know, this financial product's great with the individual, you know, term loan, but I need to close on this land in 30 days that the neighbor says, you know, he'll to me first, but I have to close quickly. That doesn't exist in regenerative ag. That's hard to get in any ag funding. Ag funding tends to be slow because it's a lot of them through kind of government programs and bank programs. But the idea that, you know, within two, three weeks, you could have funding to close on a piece of land, like that's. That's fundamental that really changes the game for these types of producers.
1: You all are kind of acting as a bank almost, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounds like a microfinance model. Where this has been done a lot in developing countries, but just like the scale of these loans versus traditional ag, but also crowdfunding from investors, is is microfinance kind of like a good way to characterize it?
0: Yeah, it's good. The, the technical like term would be a non-bank commercial lender. That's like the that's like the, specific, <laughs> the very specific category that we're in. Um, but yes, there's been inspiration from a lot of models, like Kiva was something I'd used when I was younger, and you're lending to farms in different countries, and I later realized it's not to the specific producers, it's kind of like to a local organization that will eventually distribute it, but I, I think those showed to me, and same with Kickstarter, has a lot of farms raising, you know, five or 10k, I think those showed to me that, like, there's a lot of interest and demand in getting money to these types of producers, there's awareness that, these types of producers are fundamental to you know ecosystems and health and climate change and a million other aspects. And so I started to meet these farmers, and it immediately felt like the product needs to go broad to people that are narrative driven and can really you know with their value step in and support the farm. And with Fundrise, I had just learned all of the you know regulatory frameworks to make that possible. That's the really hard part. You have to adapt your business model to like regulations that weren't designed for this type of stuff and the regulation mm-hmm. change sometimes and you have to just adjust on the fly. But I, I you know, entered the market with the perspective of real estate from Fundrise, but it's a totally different market. Regenerative farms totally different. The availability of capital is totally different. In real estate, there's tons of capital. So you have to compete right. on deals in regenerative ag. There's no money. So there, it's <laughs> not like there's no market. There's no other anybody. You know, There are a few companies that are focusing on this type of work, but in general, there's very little available in terms of what these producers can find. So you know, you, you're having to create a new market effectively. Mm. And, and that I, I enjoy that, but obviously it comes with its own challenges.
1: Yeah, definitely. So we just bought a condo last year. And that was like my first foray into mortgages, loans, like all, all that fun stuff. But after we closed on the house, our banker or our original mortgage processor, they sold our loan off to someone else, which I learned is a very common practice. Yeah. For you all, do you keep all your loans on your books or do you sell them to another bank or Yeah, that,
0: so that's a good example of the difference of our model. So we keep all the loans on our books. They're all funded by the participants in each loan. They're not like leveraged and borrowed against and they're just held to maturity and we're the counterparty that's dealing with the borrower and dealing with the funders and there's no other intermediaries. So we have full control over the entire process and if modifications have to be made, we'll go to the funders and make the adjustments and discuss it with them. So the, the type of real estate loan you made, the benefit of it being very low cost generally with long you know, 30 year term, but whatever, is that they're then packaged into you know, mortgage trusts and sold as products and securitized and all the million things that I won't go into. But the only way that works is if they fit certain compliant elements. So they make the loan, it's compliant, they package it, they put it into this facility, it gets bundled with thousands of other loans and then sliced up and sold. So we don't have all those like other people we're reliant on. So we just make the assessment if we think it's a good deal. We don't have to fit at guidelines of this program or that program And that gives us the flexibility that's really needed. So we hold it to maturity. We're the only servicer and person engaged both parties, but we also aren't restricted in like the formulaic income tests and a million things that are challenging to make work when you're funding the development and growth of a small business.
1: Got it. And where does your cash flow come from? Is that all from the small investors?
0: So right now our revenue models through loan origination fees primarily now. And we don't have a servicing fee to the lenders on our platform. We probably will add one at some point. We're just defining even the scope of servicing that we're going to deliver because it's not normal loan servicing with these types of farmers. It's very much like business advising and technical assistance. It's much more in depth, but those will be the two revenue streams. But right now we've raised outside capital. I self-funded for the first five years. And then we did a series A round with a few family offices and, and kind of mission lined investors. So that's funding the operating costs. Until the platform gets to whatever scale you know is needed for it to sustain itself.
1: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then you mentioned collateral. How does it work if a farm? I don't know if this has already happened, but if a farm defaults on their loan, what happens then?
0: So they're they're all secured loans. We're making a loan secured by the assets of the business. That can include a mortgage or deed of trust for land, or it can include equipment. You know, depends on the specific project. So. I find with most of the farms that we work with, it's timing is really the challenge that they lost a customer, they had you know issues with water, they agriculture is a very dynamic business, and things will happen where you need to support those monthly payments, but you don't have the revenue to do it. So we've done for a few loans where we've rescheduled payments, give them deferment for a certain period, has stepped in with technical assistance to help them resolve the issue around production or labor or whatever it is, and then got them back on a repayment plan. So we've had one loan that we it, it hasn't you know fully defaulted with any losses yet, but we expect that there will be some losses. But over a hundred loans at this point, only one of them has got to the point where we expect losses. There, there will there is risk in this model. You know these are small businesses. They're you know they're doing very important work, and there's definitely consumer demand for their product. But you know there's a lot that they have to learn and grow into to get to the point where they're viable enterprise. But at the end of the day, we're doing commercial underwriting and diligence and the demand for their products is skyrocketing. So as long as we can help them, you know, as good growers and good business people take the next steps to grow their business, we're just underwriting a growth in production, which they can then meet with market demand and also help them down the value chain. So I think it's a really mispriced market. The reality is there's no money for regenerative farmers, not because of the lack of viability of their business, which I had to learn by doing. It's because the traditional systems focused on large commodity production and securitizing and all of these other things that we discussed. So if you don't fit large commodity production, there's no money for you. It doesn't matter if you're selling to famous chefs and you have you know, huge demand at the farmer's market, it doesn't matter. You can't get financing, it's just not available. So mm. you're your financing producers that have established markets, established products, and now need to grow production. And I view that as like, it's a reliable, um, the the challenges that these businesses often face relate to the business of running a business and hiring people and growing. Often we're funding, you know, farms that have they have off farm jobs and they've been scraping together what they have to invest in it, but they they need more capital resources. You need to kind of throttle that business with capital to get land, equipment, labor, and grow its revenue to the point where they can then work full time on the farm and have a salary and be able to do it, you know, without knowing that one slip up you know, sends them sideways. And that's how it is now. You know, they've put their savings in credit cards, maybe some friends and family money, but they're they're just at the point where they, they need real resources to grow. And it's not that the market demands not there, they're not committed to the work. It's just that there's no market for capital for them.
1: So The Biggest Little Farm, the movie, I think is a great example for lay people to understand how much time and effort it takes to take a piece of land and build it up into an ecosystem. You have to regenerate the soil. you got to plant these. you got to figure out pest control that's organic, like all these challenges. Have you found, is there like a golden period where it makes sense to inject funding, like after X number of years on a plot of land, something like that?
0: So I, I think we rarely fund startup farms. Generally, like establish your farm, lease some land, get going. You can start farming very cheaply. You, it's just when you then want to make permanent investments and hire staff and equipment and land that you need more capital. So we like to see farms that have already established markets and products. They don't have to be selling very much. Fish Eye Farms, for example, that urban farm in Detroit, they just had 10K revenue that year that, that we underwrote them. Now they have almost 15 times that three years later. So they were able to grow enormously and meet demand and grow the revenue, but ultimately without the upfront resource, they couldn't have done it. But they had customer demand, they had hot products people wanted, and once they could scale up their production, they could meet it. So I definitely find that first three-year period in farms, like they should learn before taking on financing, they should learn if they want to stick with it. Mm. There's definitely a lot of burnout, um, but once people are committed to this work, they're going to do it. There's no other way around it. And then the, the kind of biggest little farm example, starting on a new piece of land that has been degraded, like, yes, that's going to take a long time to restore. So you just need to have a realistic plan about what it's going to take to get the land where you need, how long it's going to take for the products to be developed, for market sales to happen, at what prices, You know where are you are going to process? And that's the benefit of our financing is we can structure the terms as needed. So most of our loans have a six to 12 month deferment period where interest payments are deferred, they accrue and then they start paying current once they actually have the cash flow based on projections to support it. So if they're adding, you know, hoop houses and drip irrigation to grow more fruits and vegetables, they'll need six months, you know, from the use of funds until it's shown more revenue. And so a lot of the challenge with the traditional ag financing is you have to start making payments the next month. Mm-hmm. And like, from what? You know, there's just, there's just not revenue possible to generate that fast. Right. And so designing the financing around the life cycle of the land and the business leads to better outcomes for everybody because you're you're expecting the business and land to generate the resources to then support the income and not you know off-farm jobs and all the the other things that are expected these days.
1: Yeah I feel like a big differentiator that you guys offer is like you have farmers in-house who understand who you're lending to and you start that conversation with actual farming practices which is I take it not what usually happens when they go to a bank and they ask for a loan.
0: No, not at all. And, and, and that's, you know, all we do every day is provide financing to regenerative farms. That's it, nothing else. So mm-hmm. you you learn to specialize in it. You have to specialize in this market. I don't think you can do this on the side. That's, all, that's our value proposition to a lot of funders, you know, not just smaller funders, but bigger funders like family offices. You know, they want to put money into regenerative ag you know, how and where realistically, how are they gonna find the farms and diligence and servicing and oversight. So you do need, I think, a specialist to not only put the financing together, but keep eyes on and assist the business as it goes. But everyone on our team just loves this work. Whatever they do at the company, they care immensely about it. We do have the person who leads our agricultural diligence is a farmer himself. He founded and ran a farm incubator for over a decade. So, you know, in and out, he knows about farm businesses and the resources they need and what are realistic plans. And much of his conversation with the, the applicant is about like, what is a realistic plan? Like what, mm. what should we plan for for the next few years? Let's focus on one business line to really grow the poultry business as opposed to doing five different things and just helping phase out like where do they wanna get in the future, but how can we get them there step by step? And without that kind of like agricultural knowledge, I don't think you could do these types of deals, which is why people don't do these types of deals and traditional banks avoid these types of deals. And if it's a commodity deal where they can resell it in some program, they'll do it. But if they have to hold the risk, they don't make those types of decisions.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about that agricultural diligence process? How do you make sure that the uh, the farms you fund are hitting those goals and are farming in a way that's regenerative and not, I mean, God forbid, like they're using the money to buy Monsanto seeds or whatever, yeah. whatever it is.
0: So, yeah, I would say for us, it hasn't been a challenge to date because all of our branding communications messaging is about supporting you know human scale regenerative farms. So like if you want traditional ag money, it's available. And if you have 600 acres of corn, like there's a million outlets. If you're not that, and then you come to us to refer to us, it's like, oh, my God, this is first they're skeptical, obviously, because it's like, who actually cares about this? But once <laughs> they realize it's real, you know, that they've, they've self-selected to come to us. Aaron who, who runs our agricultural team, he does the first layer of diligence on that phone call for, you know they do an application about their business practices, markets, products. Then he'll speak to them, understand like their capacity as, as a farmer, you know, are they experienced and knowledgeable, but also drill down on what actual practices are they using? And if they can't speak in an informed way about it, you're not using them. I mean, you can talk about the broad-based details of kind of climate and agriculture when you're actually talking about on your land, what specific practice implementing with what crops and what rotations, it can be real. And then for most loans, larger loans, particularly the real estate loans, we do site visit as well. We often connect them with a local technical assistance provider who can help provide oversight. So there's a lot of upfront diligence around what their farming practices are, including a binding part of our contract that they have to follow certain prescribed practices, plus agricultural diligence, plus ongoing oversight. But the main thing that you can tell is like the values of the farmer. There's a lot of steps to working with us. You're not going to just apply online and get money immediately or, you know, go to a bank and just hand a form in and get funding. So you have to go through it. You have to care about this type of work. And that's readily apparent. And most of the people we're funding are obsessed with regenerative agriculture. It's all they would ever do. It's not like, oh, I maybe I would do some conventional soy and on the side do this. It's like all they care about. And then we are working with a few conventional farms converting. And in each of those cases, they're mandated to have a technical assistance provider who is doing site visits and providing like on the ground advice to assist them because transitioning agricultural land is very difficult. I think everyone pretends it's going to be easy. It's very challenging and you needed a lot of oversight, not just to make sure they're doing what they're saying, but to actually assist them because they're jumping into a direction they have never done before.
1: Hmm. Do you find that farmers who come to you, do you find that they'll underestimate the amount of funding they'll need based on the work ahead? And is that kind of like where your team will step in and say, well, actually like you're going to have to do X, Y, Z in addition?
0: I would say normally, I think it's overestimated in the short term and then underestimated long-term. So Mm -hmm. they'll have a funding request with lots of, a bunch of stuff in it. And then we'll whittle it down of like, what will clearly drive revenue or reduce expenses and, and clearly support the financing that is like very measurable. And let's just do that first. And let's raise, do a loan for 75K for these pieces of equipment and infrastructure. And then next season, let's fund more. And so like how do we break it down into very specific pieces to keep you on benchmark, to minimize the amount of your borrowing and the interest and just risk to the business? But in reality, for almost any farm, if you project five, 10 years of like reliable funding, it's gonna be hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. It's, you know, you're gonna develop one business line, that's gonna to lead to another, you're gonna invest in that. And that's the symbiotic nature of regenerative ag. but you need time to work for you. So by having, you know, lower amounts initially that are very targeted, it can start to build the cash flows to then support more financing in the future. And that's just like our, our philosophy, like what's the minimum we can do that really makes an impact to manage risk for everybody. And by keeping a good relationship, then they can allocate money in the future based on what is happening, not based on what they guessed in the beginning because you know agriculture is never according to plan.
1: Right, yeah, that's, that's smart. You're kind of prototyping the risk on both sides. Now that you're growing this network of hundreds, probably thousands of of farms and agriculture producers, have you also made introductions for farmers to each other, like to help each other out regionally, things like that?
0: Yeah, we're starting to do more of that. We're going to have our first formal cohort this year among farmers of kind of like similar size that are really focused in, in taking that next step. And we've also connected a few farmers who have similar business lines, like urban farmers to different cities or two farms that are have an agritourism farm stay component so i find like the the kind of like how do you run this business line specific to regenerative ag is the more relevant factor and then location they tend to already have the local networks i think what they find mm-hmm. exciting about us is they get that national network across the board. Locally, they tend to all know each other because there aren't many of them. And they, <laughs> they, they've struggled to find Fair. people to talk to. And like, they don't, you know, they need to figure things out. And the local extension agents normally aren't familiar with these types of farming practices. And so, you know, they'll, they'll find the other people. I find there's a very strong support network of people in regenerative ag who they want to see growth and success. But by f- connecting farms that are you know, at a similar stage of their growth, but different places and they get to know each other, I think it has had a big impact. I think over time that'll be one of our biggest strengths that we'll have a large network of farms that we can kind of connect and share information and you know, help them all do what they're trying to do the best way. And then the uh, network of funders who you know not only fund the farms, will spend money at the farms and help promote the farms and activate them. And then the third pool of people I see eventually is the service providers. We then support the actual operation of the business, which means that they're more likely to be successful, which means the, the kind of default and losses should be lower.
1: It's almost like tech stars for farms.
0: There are a few farming incubators around the country, but if you want to learn how to farm, uh, it's a very hard pathway to mm. find. And you kind of like intern here a little bit, unpaid here, like it's not mm. a clear path. So there, there needs to be more of a reliable path to people who want to become farmers. But there were very resourceful people to figure it out, but certainly things could be expedited or... Um, There could be a more reliable process to learn and then get your own operation.
1: So if Steward is helping all these farms with similar things of like marketing, branding, go-to-market processes, do you see in the future like a Steward brand of farms? Like would would their operations fall under a Steward brand? Yeah,
0: I don't. um, That's just like personally... I don't want to become another aggregator. So I like my whole purpose <laughs> yeah. of doing this is to like provide resources and power and independence to the producers and the producer networks. And so I'm very focused on like that we provide credit, right? We're not taking ownership in these businesses. We're lending the money they need and, and ensuring repayment. And we're assisting them, you know, as like a contractor on for grant writing and these other services. But I, I want independence on the farmers where I do see us, getting more involved is around processing facilities around shared infrastructure, because that's always a challenge. They all need the shared infrastructure, but none of them wants to do the whole thing. So you, you have entrepreneurs who step up and there we're having more oversight around like a lot of that's construction management and real estate development and permitting and all of the challenging things that happen. But we're still only funding producer owned facilities. If the value is not going to producers or being shared with the producers, we're not funding it. And the last thing we want to be is you know, an intermediary that is buying as low as they can and selling as high as they can, which is, you know, how they trade off their information. That's how it happens. They have more Mm -hmm. information than one single farmer. So creating reliable market access to farmers through a fully vertically ranked system that they actually can own and manage is like fundamental to my belief in what a functioning food system looks like. So we're very focused on enabling farmers to be successful, not us being an investment firm that's owning land Mm -hmm. and farms and you know, making a spread on on being an integrator and their their products.
1: Well, as we come to a close, maybe you can share with us some of your favorite like success stories so far, and give listeners a peek into like some of your favorite farms, maybe that you've worked with. Some of your yeah. favorite stories.
0: I mean, I that's my that's the part I like most. So Fish Eye Farms is one I I talk about a lot and I've referenced them because you know they were farming in a tenth of an acre in Detroit on a side lot next to the guy's uncle's dry cleaner. So. You know, they just they learned urban farming and the university they were at, and they just started farming on tiny bit of land that they could get access to and created something really special. But getting access to large amounts of land was very hard, even though in Detroit there's vacant land everywhere. The Detroit land bank, you know, they didn't really think that farmers could raise financing and have the money to purchase land effectively. So we stepped in, provided the financing for them to purchase two acres. They've now grown their business from 10K revenue to over hundred thousand i think hundred thirty thousand this year in in two acres proving that like there is economic viability for small farms they've taken degraded abandoned land and restored it they are a local you know farm stand and direct sales outlet for community they're even now you know they're in a food desert but they're growing products for people in the food desert that are requesting them like green tomatoes has been something so they're even adjusting what they're growing for local customers. And to me, that's like what it's all about. You're improving the ecosystem, you're improving community resilience, health, access to food. Doing it in a way that's economically viable and building links in a system that then will influence other people to do the same, and that's two acres of land. That's not even considered a farm in America. That's that's like not you wouldn't you can't like even get a big get, garden. <laughs> basically, in Iowa, they actually under 100 acres is classified as a garden. So that's wow. that's their level of thinking. So it's a story of alter, you know alternative people doing things differently, and Stuart enabling them to build their own success, but also have people repaid you know, from a loan that, that they took risk on initially. Right now, I'm working on a lot of livestock processing projects where networks of producers in livestock is a huge problem, want, you know, control over processing and market access. So we're about to fund one in Montana, which is a network of producers creating a not quite a co-op, but almost a co-op model where value shared between the workers who run the business that does the processing and sales and the producers who are providing the cattle and other livestock. And they're going to be fully, fully, fully integrated with slaughter facility, a value-added processing of kind of aging, curing, drying, smoking, and restaurant. And they have actually like a burger joint already open. So I think that's like showcasing the like full traceability through one, you know, combined producer, employee-owned system that can be like a sleek consumer product, and also a market outlet for you know traditional ranchers using practices that are improving the ecology but not having to figure out all of those other things that you know are very hard to do and so that that's a model that I think will be successful around you know a processing facility connecting the kind of like cpg consumer marketing and the producer network and and them combining as like a joint enterprise so that you know they have reliable supply of good product and they can sell at a good margin and that's the dream right that's like that's viability
1: not really. That's like the perfect case study of vertical integration. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your stories, sharing more about Steward. If folks are interested in investing or just learning more about Steward, where can they find you guys?
0: Yes, they can go to our website, gosteward.com. So G-O-S-T-E-W-A-R-D.com. And if anyone wants to email me, they can email me at dan at gosteward.com and I will try to reply.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much, Dan. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.